the final part, part three of this series called A Beautiful Mind. Um, why what you think matters to God, and this is the final week of it. And uh, we learned on, in the first week, we talked about identity and some of the mistakes that we can make, uh, in particular as Christians, about identity and how we base it sometimes on our ethnicity or sometimes on the flesh, as the Bible uses the term, or sometimes on the will of one dominant figure in our lives. Uh, but God teaches us that we're first and foremost born of God. And then we learned about last week uh, what you think, uh, why what you think affects what you do. And we talked about think about what you think about, right? If you remember Dr. Phil, uh, and garbage in, garbage out. And if you put scripture in, you get life out. You can listen to those messages online on our website, um, cityreachbrossard.com. And by the way, you can uh, like us on Facebook and get up to date with announcements and stuff like that as well. Today, we're going to conclude with the idea of the battle between your ears. The battle between your ears. We observed a couple of things over the last two weeks. And that is that, you know, God wants our minds to be beautiful. He created them that way. But wow, there's a process to get there. And we made a couple of observations. Number one, our thoughts, our minds, to some degree, have a spiritual component to them. Um, and this has to do with the soul and the, the soul that God created us with. Uh, we see a, a rather curious and graphic story in the gospel a record of Luke where you have these two, these two people from wildly different backgrounds who, who die, who, who pass away, and their bodies are in the ground, and a story is told of how these two are communicating with each other. And even Abraham from the Old Testament is in the picture, and there's this dialogue that's going on. Their memories are intact, their emotions are intact. Well, how's that possible when their bodies are in the ground? There seems to be some kind of spiritual element to what we think about and, and to our minds. I don't know that we know how to quantify this, but it's there. And this, again, has to do with the fact that we're created in the image of God and we have a soul. And that soul exists even past the point of physical death. So to a degree, our thoughts are spiritual and they're also invisible. And um, you'll be glad of that because, again, we talked about if you put a, put a little probe on your head and we could see everything that you're thinking on the screen, you'd probably say no to that experiment because you don't, we don't want everyone to know what you're thinking all the time. Uh, so they're invisible. You don't know what I'm thinking right now. I don't know what you're thinking right now. I could assume, but I could be very, very wrong. Uh, so our thoughts are spiritual, our thoughts are invisible. Corinthians says there in the reference on the screen, who knows the thoughts of man except man's spirit within him? There's a spiritual quality, there's an invisible quality. Well, when you're dealing with the spiritual and you're dealing with the invisible, you've got something else to deal with that the Bible uh, describes it's it's clear in the scripture that there is a, a spiritual and an invisible reality. It exists in the Bible. It's very, very clear in the Bible. There is a world that we can't see. It's a spiritual world. It's an invisible world. 
and our thought life kind of intersects with this world. And the Bible would definitely affirm that there is a battle that goes on on the inside, on the inside of our minds. And it has to do with this invisible and this spiritual world. It, it crosses into it, it intersects it all the time. So Paul writes to the, to the Corinthians, we looked at this last week, uh, though we live in the world, we do not wage world, uh, war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine, speaking of spiritual there, divine power to demolish strongholds is the word he uses. And we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. And we talked about this uh, a little bit last week. There's a spiritual element to it. There are arguments, there are thoughts, there are strongholds, there are pretensions that set themselves up against the knowledge of God all the time in our minds. And we're directed to deal with those things. Uh, in, a, in a volitional way there. Um, Ephesians chapter 6 uh, from verse 10, if you've been in, in an evangelical church for any length of time, you've heard a message uh, dealing with this subject and talking about the armor of God. Uh, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Uh, affirming the existence of a real devil there. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities and powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And he, then he gives his image of armor. Put on the armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, he didn't say if, when the day of evil comes, you'll be able to stand your ground and after you've done everything to stand. And he goes in these pieces of armor, right? So stand with the belt of truth buckled around your waist and the breastplate of righteousness in, in place and your feet fitted with a readiness that comes from the gospel of peace and uh, take up the shield of faith and, uh, and uh, the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, all imagery actually from a Roman soldier of the time. But again, this affirms this battle this invisible battle that takes place on a daily basis in the lives of people. And the Bible would affirm uh, the existence of a major, major character in this, in this battle that we, that we fight. Uh, you've got participants that are listed there. Uh, you and God and, yes, the devil. Um, and, you know, some people would, would choose to deny the existence of a literal, real devil. But the Bible clearly affirms the existence of such a being uh, who operates in the spiritual and who operates in the invisible. And the Bible is bold about this. And one would have to admit when you survey, you know, humanity for any length of time, it doesn't, it's not always a satisfactory answer. To say, well, people just do bad things. Because sometimes the things that we see and the things that people do just don't seem to have an explanation in terms of, well, it was just their choice. They just did it. And the Bible would go further. The Bible would talk about a, a real, evil, personal being 
set on the destruction of people. And the Bible affirms it very, very clearly. Um, uh, Jesus talked in, in John chapter 8, uh, the passage I have on the screen, about these participants and about the way that it works. Uh, there's elements in this battle, truth and lie. There are three participants, basically, you, God, and the devil. Um, John chapter 8, verses 42 to 45, Jesus is in a heated debate with the religious people of the day. And he says to them, if God were your father... You would love me, for I came from God and am now here. I have not come on my own, but he sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, speaking to the religious folks of the day. You belong to your father, the devil. And you want to carry out your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning. This is Jesus speaking, not holding to the truth for there is no truth in him when he lies. He speaks his native language. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Wow. So you've got three participants there. You've got humanity. You've got God. And yes, you've got the devil. And uh, the elements that are used are basically truth and lie. How many of you have ever told a lie? I hope you all raise your hand, because if you don't, you just lied. Because <laughs> all of us have lied at one point in our lives, right? How many of you have ever been lied to? Probably every single one of us has been either, li either lied or been lied to. Have you ever thought about why people lie? Usually there's, there's two reasons, usually. We like to kid ourselves and think that we lie for someone else's benefit, but really... In, in the end, there's always a benefit toward us, in the end. Uh, there, there's always a reason that will benefit us. So we lie to, to benefit ourselves often. But we also lie, unfortunately, to hurt other people. Uh, and this is kind of the two major reasons, at least, why we, why we lie. Well, when Jesus talks about this, this devil, well, he's saying the native language that this being speaks is lies. So all he does is lie. He lies all the time. That's his native language. You know, how many of you speak more than one language? You, you may speak two if you know, use French and whatever. Well, he's got a language. It's the language of lies. And this is all that he does. And Jesus is very, uh, very direct. And so in this spiritual, invisible kind of realm that crisscrosses with our minds all the time, you're going to be dealing with this. And, you know, I know it sounds a little strange, particularly if you come from a, maybe a non-churched context, but make no mistake about it. The Bible affirms the existence of this in very, very forceful terms. And I have found that what goes on in the lives of people is, has to do with whether you believe the truth or whether you believe the lie. In, in some major, major areas. You know, when people talk about the devil and demons, they always think about, you know, Ouija boards and exorcisms and all this stuff that we see in Hollywood movies. Um, and those things, those things do exist, maybe not the way that they're depicted in Hollywood movies. And I've, I've dealt with those things, rarely, but maybe three or four times. Uh, but most of the stuff of spiritual warfare, to coin a popular term, takes place right up here. What you're thinking about, what you're believing, 
what you're not believing, what's true, what's false, truth or lie, that's the, that's the real practical stuff of day-to-day -day living. And sometimes when people believe enough lies and get involved in enough, enough stuff, it ends in some sort of power confrontation, some sort of supernatural confrontation. But really it's the day-to-day -day stuff that we're interested in for today and the, and the practical things. So I want to give you three kind of questions in the arena of this battle. Sorry, not three. Did I say three? Seven uh, uh, questions in this that, that are always floating around in people's minds uh, in, this, in this battle. And uh, I want you to see what God really says about those things. Okay, question number one, we'll frame it this way. Who's got the power? Who's got the power? This is the idea that, that God... And this devil are always fighting. And there's a picture on the screen of Star Wars. I, I love Star Wars, okay? Call me whatever you want. You know, if you're religious, you think a new age or whatever. Call me what you want. I love Star Wars, okay? But Star Wars paints a very interesting picture related to this subject. Because in Star Wars, you have the force. And the, the force can be, you have the, the light side of the force or you have the dark side. But it's, you can manipulate the thing, so you can use it for good, you can use it for evil. And this is kind of a dualism worldview that we see presented in, the, in this film series. And, you know, you've got a guy who can switch to the dark side, and then, you know, and then you've got another guy on the light side. To me, Apple is the dark side. So those of you with Apple phones, you know, I still use a BlackBerry. Uh, but, but all joking apart, that's the view that's presented in the, in the film series. But that's a dualism worldview. So uh, Christians sometimes think this way, or even non-Christians, and they say, well, if there's a God and if there's a devil, then when something good happens to me, it's, it's because of God. And when something bad happens to me, well, it must be because of the devil, and that's just the way that it works. And I'm kind of a pawn in between the two and being plopped around between the two. Does the Bible really paint this kind of picture? Well, it does not at all. Um, uh, Colossians chapter 2 and 15, a declaration from the Apostle Paul. He says that Jesus on the cross, having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. He's speaking about this invisible world. And he's saying that this, this world of darkness has been shamed by Jesus on the cross, has been disarmed, has been stripped, has been triumphed over by Jesus on the cross. Um, so this is not some sort of power struggle between good and evil. This is a decisive moment where through the cross, Jesus has, has triumphed through the cross. And the Bible would teach that the ultimate nail in the coffin will come at the return of Jesus to this world. First uh, John chapter three, verse eight puts it this way. Um, he who does what is sinful is of the devil. Very strong language because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. And watch the reason the son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work to destroy, not to play chess. 
um, to destroy the devil's work. So we're not talking about a power struggle like Star Wars. We're talking about how God is triumphant in the scripture over the forces of, of evil. Okay, that's question number one. Question number two, um, who knows the future? Who knows the future? I'll put it that way. And um, in, this, in this idea, uh, we think to ourselves sometimes that our future is sort of set uh, by the forces of fate. And we can, we can peer into the future by using various means. You know, we can go visit a, an astrologer or we can get into horoscopes or we can go and, you know, explore these kinds of supernatural things to, to see what the future really holds for us. Who knows the future? Well, when you look at the scripture, it's clear that only God, only God knows the future. The, the, the devil does not. And some people think that he does, but he does not. In fact, God challenges everyone in the Bible to say, you tell me what happens before it happens, and you'll be a real God, is, is effectively what he says. Isaiah chapter 45 in the Old Testament, you've got a pluralistic culture there where you've got people from all kinds of different lands bringing their idols and their religions and all this stuff and Isaiah says gather together and come um, assemble you fugitives from the nations ignorant are those who carry about idols of wood who pray to gods that cannot save declare what is to be present it let them take counsel together who foretold this long ago and declared it from the distant past? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none but me. What's he saying? He's making an exclusive claim there that only he knows the future. No one else does because he's already there. Uh, chapter 47, keep on then, speaking of the occult here, keep on then with your magic spells and with your many sorceries which you have labored at since childhood. Perhaps you will succeed, he says. Perhaps you will cause terror. And then he concludes, all the counsel you have received has only worn you out. Let your astrologers come forward. Let the stargazers who make predictions month by month, let them save you from what is coming upon you. Surely they are like stubble. The fire will burn them up. They can't even save themselves from the power of the flame. Very graphic language. I can remember a number of years ago, there was a popular uh, astrologer that even made television appearances and all that and you could call the phone number and have your future predicted and all of this the interesting thing about the astrologer was she was unable to predict her own bankruptcy strange this is kind of like what isaiah is talking about here and he's saying it all comes to nothing that stuff only god knows the future because god is already there question number three Along the same lines, who knows what I'm thinking? Remember, we started at the beginning, uh, your thoughts are invisible. Who knows what I'm thinking? Well, if this evil being exists, does he know what I'm thinking? Uh, and the answer is no. And I found that many people, even Christian people, uh, think that 
the devil knows what they're thinking, and the answer is he does not. Only you and God know. Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 to 4, uh, looking at Jesus, he steps in a boat, crosses over, goes to his own town in Capernaum. Some men bring to him a paralyzed man who's lying on a mat. And it says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. And at that time, some of the teachers of the law say to themselves, this fellow, he's a blasphemer by saying that. And then verse 4, knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Wow, he knew what they were thinking, and they were very religious people. Luke chapter 9, verses 47 to 48, again, Jesus knowing their thoughts, the crowd that was around him, that was skeptical of him, knowing their thoughts, he took a little child and had him stand beside him. And then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Knowing their thoughts, knowing what people think. Revelation chapter 2, this is Jesus after his resurrection in a kind of a glorified state there. I am he who searches hearts and who searches minds. And I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Scary. So if there's one who knows what you're thinking besides yourself and perhaps your wife, because usually wives can read minds. Those of you who are married, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, it's God. Remember, it's God. And you know what the cool thing is about God? Is that even though he knows what you think, he still loves you. He still loves you. He still has grace with you. He still has patience with you, even though he knows every little last thing that you think about all the time. Isn't that nice? Now, the, the scripture teaches um, that while the, the, the enemy of humanity doesn't know what we think, he certainly can, to a degree, pepper what we think. A bit like a pepper shaker that he can shake into our heads sometimes. And the Bible, the Bible talks about this. Um, Paul writes to the Corinthians that uh, the people's minds were made dull. Um, he says the God of this age has blinded people's minds. He talks about being afraid that the Corinthian church would be led astray in their minds like Eve was led astray in the garden. So there's this kind of mental game that the enemy can play with us, but he does not know what we are thinking. Don't give him that kind of credit. Question number four, who controls nature? I've heard this one a lot. Um, so whenever people see things that go wrong in creation, tornadoes and earthquakes and disasters and you know, mass casualties, sometimes people reason that this is because of some sort of evil source. And this is why this is happening, uh, you know, because, well, that's the work of the evil one. The Bible does not teach this. Uh, the Bible teaches that, in fact, it is God who is sovereign and in control over all of the cosmos. Um, Psalm 24, verses 1 to 2, the earth is the Lord's. It's the Lord's. 
and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. You read the Psalms and you're going to see declaration after declaration that it is God who created it. It is God who is sovereign over it. People sometimes look at the book of Job and they say, aha, you see those disasters were caused by the devil. No, they weren't. They were, they were lines of permission that God gave to him to do that. Ultimately, God is in control of the whole scene of the book of Job, ultimately. And people say, well, are you saying that God causes these kinds of things, these hurricanes and these disasters where you have all these mass casualties, these tsunamis and these kinds of things? Uh, be careful with that line of reasoning, okay? Be careful. The Bible talks about how because of sin, the creation groans and it's kind of breaking apart waiting for a full redemption at the coming of the Lord and this kind of breaking apart and this falling apart of creation is given to us in the scripture. It's not a direct result of God waving his little finger. It's because sin is running its course throughout creation and it's, it's falling apart. It's not coming together. It's in a state of decay. Make no mistake about it though. God is sovereign and in control, ultimately, of the whole thing. Uh, question number five. I'll call this one, Who Made Me Do It? There's an, old, uh, there's an old song, I think, or an old saying, where people used to say, the devil made me do it. Have you heard that before? Uh, some people still use this, this line, and this is the idea that when people do these heinous things, they just, well, find an easy, an easy uh, 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 one to blame. They say, well, it's the devil who made me do it, and um, I wasn't in control of my faculties and all this kind of stuff. Uh, I've even seen this in the, in the church amongst the you know, believing, professing believers. And the way we do it is a little more clever, and we invent these spirits and we say, well, you know, it's a spirit of murder who caused me to hate this person. It's a spirit of theft who made me steal the money. It's a spirit of adultery who made me cheat on my wife. Aha, it's a spirit. It's the spirit of Jezebel. It's the spirit. I mean, I've heard so many spirits. You won't find any of these things in the Bible. You won't find a spirit of some sort of action in the Bible. You'll see spirits, but you won't, they don't have names and of, of particular sins because they're not the ones who sin. The one who sins is guess who? You and me. We're the ones who do it. We can't run around and start blaming, uh, you know, the devil or whosoever. James chapter 1 verses 13 to 15. We actually talked about this this morning in U-turn. Uh, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. I've heard that before, where people say, oh, God is tempting me today. Well, James says, no, God, is, God doesn't tempt you. God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire. He doesn't even mention some evil being. By his own evil desire. He puts the blame square on the person. He is dragged away and enticed. And then after sin is conceived, it gives birth to death, using the image of childbirth there. And then, uh, uh, it, sorry, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. He puts the blame square on the person who makes the volitional choice to take the bait. 
and to sin. Amazing. He doesn't blame the spirit of whatever. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. We looked at this today also in, in the group there. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. Some people think, oh, well, my temptation is worse than everybody else's. I have a special brand of temptation. I'm so special that my particular temptation, nobody on earth has ever struggled with it. You know, well, that's not what the scripture says. No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. Others have been there and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out, a way of escape so that you can stand up under. He says, when you are tempted, it's not if, it's when. So I, I personally believe that Christians are tempted every single day and that Christians sin every single day. I will be honest with you as a pastor, I probably sin every single day. Now you would look at my sin list and say, well, that's not such a big deal. La, 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 la. Well, it is to me and it is to God. So you've got your own list and I'll let you work that out yourself. But I personally believe that Christians sin every day and are tempted every day. Now, hopefully, if you're a Christian, you sin less than, you know, when you weren't a Christian. Hopefully, you're, you know, you're getting better in that, in that way. Uh, but it's a reality when you are tempted. It's always there. It's dropped right in front of your lap. And now with, now with uh, electronics and the speed at which we can communicate, wow, it's accessible. It's right in front of you all the time. But it's you who takes the bait. Will you take the way of escape that God offers or will you take the bait? That's our choice, but God provides that way out. Uh, uh, question number six, who paid the price? I'll call it that. Who paid the price? And this is particular in Christian circles when we talk about the death of Jesus on the cross. You have to understand how that all works. And it, there are some people who think that when Jesus died on the cross, it was to pay some sort of debt to Satan uh, because he sort of holds humanity in his clutches. And when Jesus died on the cross, he paid the price to Satan. And then he got the keys of death and hell from the book of Revelation. And we have this, this rather bizarre idea as if the evil one has that much ability and that much power the price of Jesus paid on the cross for our sin was paid to God himself. It was paid to God the Father by God the Son to redeem humanity from sin. This is what we celebrate when we have communion. This is what we celebrate at Easter. Really, it's what we celebrate every time we come together. Romans 3:25. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. For thousands of years, the, the, the Jewish people would present these sacrifices to God of animals to atone and cover the sins of the people because this is the price that God demanded. Well, it's the same thing. It's just one person who is God and man at the same time does it once and for all, for all humankind, a sacrifice of atonement. First um, John chapter two and verse two, Jesus is the one who turns aside God's wrath, taking away our sins. 
or in some translations, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. The price was paid to God the Father to satisfy his justice and to satisfy that need for that penalty to be paid so that God's love and God's justice are not in contradiction there. He loves us, but he himself has paid the penalty by sending his own son to die in our place. And uh, uh, question number seven, and this will be the last one, who is the real enemy? Who is the real enemy? I mean, sometimes when people, uh, again, Christian people, they think, well, I don't need to worry about any of this stuff that you're talking about. I mean, this is for people who have played with Ouija boards and all this and watched too many horror movies and visited the astrologers or whatever and had themselves hypnotized and da-da-da and were into drugs. And that's, that's the kind of people who this applies to. It doesn't apply to the average believer. Well, why then does Paul or does James say uh, resist the devil if it doesn't apply to all of us? Why would he even bother to say it? Why does Paul say in Ephesians 6 that we looked at, put on the full armor of God? Well, why does he say that? Is he addressing just the, just the crazy people, uh, just the former drug addicts and occultists? No, he's addressing everybody. Put on the full armor of God. The problem is we fail to realize how this stuff kind of works out in the mechanics. And the, the way that the Bible teaches it, uh, really there are kind of two primary areas that the everyday person is going to struggle with. And uh, one of them is unforgiveness, and the other one is unresolved anger. This is the playground of this, of this battle, and it usually manifests itself in human relationships. So if you're going to deal with the devil, he's not going to appear to you, at least in most cases, with a little pitchfork and little red horns, you know, at the foot of your bed in a dream and say, hi, it's me. I've come to mess up your life. Okay. In most cases, that's not going to be the way that it's going to work. It's going to work in areas of unresolved anger and unforgiveness. This is what the Bible kind of addresses. And this may be a shock to you. The famous passage uh, in Ephesians chapter six has a context when we talked about R-rated relationships earlier uh, when we first launched, uh, we talked about this. This passage in Ephesians starts with the word, finally, you know, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Well, finally is there because it's, it's finalizing a series of thoughts that the author has. And he starts his thoughts way back in the previous chapter in Ephesians 5. And he says, submit to one another out of reverence for God. He's not talking about the devil there. He says, submit to one another out of reverence for God. Then he goes into these different categories of relationships and how people should submit to one another in, in marriage, uh, in, in parenting, in, in uh, uh, working, you could say, in employment in today's context. And then he says, finally, put on the full armor of God for our struggle is not against flesh and blood. Implication. Your struggle is not against your wife or your husband. It's not against your boss or your employee. It's not against your, your kid. It's not against your parents. Your struggle is that invisible world where you're fighting an evil one who, who he's really the one who you're fighting. And if you, if you, if you hate that person and if your relationship 
go sour with that person, you're, you've got the wrong enemy there. Your enemy is, is the evil one, that malevolent being who works in these areas. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4. Uh, Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. For we are all members of one body, so don't lie. In your anger, do not sin. A quote from the Psalms. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil, whoa, a foothold. Unresolved anger in relationships where you can't resolve it and you're angry all the time doesn't mean that anger is sin per se. It means in your anger, don't sin. Do something about that fractured relationship or try to do something because if you give in to that anger and it is not resolved, you're giving the devil a foothold, a place of some sort to, to uh, uh, cause trouble in your life. Um, I can remember I've done hundreds of hospital visits as a minister, hundreds of them. I can't even count them uh, at this point. And I can remember a specific case where I visited a person and I would say that that person died of unresolved anger. When I went to visit the person and I asked the person, how are you? They began to recount a situation in a personal relationship that was 25 years old. And this was a senior person. And they re- re- recounted this situation with vivid, vivid detail as if it happened yesterday. And when this person described it, she, her face began to contort and, her, and her, her fists were clenched as if the thing had happened yesterday. It was a grave injustice that happened to her. But that thing caused problems even I would say with her physical health like she was physically deterred in some way because of this this unresolved anger and I would say that she died to a degree of that unresolved anger and bitterness because she could never deal with it never deal with it second Corinthians 2 10 to 11 if you forgive anyone I also forgive him for what I have forgiven. If there is anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake in order that Satan might not outwit us for we are not unaware of his schemes. Unforgiveness versus forgiveness. Uh, The situation that he's probably talking about is a rather gory one that you read about in Corinthians of a man who has an illicit affair with his stepmother. It's a rather gross and gory thing that we read in that, in that book of 1 Corinthians. And Paul challenges the church and says, kick the guy out. Kick him out and put him out of the church. And you all should be ashamed of yourself for not addressing this. And he's very aggressive in the way he addresses the situation. But then he picks it up here and he talks about forgiveness presumably of this fellow who committed this this awful thing uh, in that day. And he talks about forgiveness. And he says, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. It is a scheme of the enemy. When you cannot forgive, when you cannot release your right to get even and release your vengeance against the person, 
It is a scheme of the enemy where he can come in and just cause all kinds of problems in your life, whatever they may be. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus talks about this very serious terms. For if you forgive men when they sin against you, your Father, your heavenly Father, will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. Whoa, that's very, very strong. He takes that very, very seriously. And one of the reasons is because, again, this kind of area is a playground, the playground of this invisible battle that takes place in our lives on a daily basis. So those are seven Seven kind of big questions that are probably, you've probably had them before. They've probably been tossed around in your mind over many, many times uh, in periods in your life. So remember, remember what the Bible has to say about these issues. Can you please?